Welcome to What's Left To Do. I'm your host, Janelle. As you all have surely become aware, we are in the midst of a growing private sector strike wave. Thus, it is only appropriate that we hear from one of the writers tasked with covering this and other working class movements. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin, who is probably very uniquely suited to cover labor as she has had to navigate the terrain of standing up versus sitting down jobs throughout her life. Her role as a union organizer of fellow grad school workers gives her a particularly unique view of the current moment we're in. But before we got to know her as Alex Press the writer, she was first a gymnast, vagabond throughout Europe as a minor for a summer, (laughs) and an anarchist as a result of the Occupy movement. All right, all right. Well, we're still on the road. Maybe we'll just never come back in from being on the road. Uh, But who are we sitting with uh, today? We have with us a writer's writer. We have Madam short hair don't care if you go in the press it better be with alex press incredible <laughs> <laughs> ah, i try i try and come up with clever things like in the five That's minute great. rise on the way over better the introduction than i've probably ever gotten <laughs> we're, here, we're here today with a jacobin a writer for jacobin magazine alex press how are you doing alex i'm great how are you i am so t- i am here's what you don't know <clears throat> I am captain of Team Too Much, so today has just been extremely dramatic uh, getting here, but we're here, so it's it will have all been worth it, but I'm doing well. Okay, that's high <laughs> expectations on me now. No, 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 no. This, is, this, is, this is not your Makes fault Makes it sound like you like swam across one of the rivers in Pittsburgh to get here it, from where your friends I kind stay. of did, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, that's me. That's, you know, we need a story before the story and i god we'll talk about it later after we <laughs> after we wrap it up it's good um well this this will air not not right now and you're i know you're very busy in the midst of writing about the the very um awe-inspiring kind of labor uprising across the country um can you can you give us just a sneak peek of all of the all of the things you're monitoring right now before we get into your story just to set the stage set the stage for um for for uh, where you are right now in your writing career yeah so um right now there's been an uptick in strikes in the private sector which is really unusual in the united states usually it's public sector unions that are going on strike that's right um and so that's pretty significant um and there's also been this startling kind of undercurrent going on with the working class in the united states in that people are quitting their jobs Mm -hmm. in record numbers so it's not the traditional labor action you know like collective action new unions Um, But when you have millions of workers quitting their jobs, something's going on. That's right. Um, And so to me, that reflects an actual change in the mood Mm -hmm. um, in which uh, for me, that means that I am busy, as you said. (laughs) So I've been writing about IATSE, um, which is the union of crew members in the film and TV industry. Mm -hmm. Um, 60,000 of them actually were supposed to start a strike today. Mm -hmm. Um, And they their leadership reached a tentative agreement um, on late Saturday night. 
Um, so the strike is off for the moment, but members are, many members are not thrilled with what it looks like is in that contract. Um, so it may be back on the table soon if they vote that contract down. What do you, th- so this, it's, what is today, the 18th yeah. of October? Okay. What do you think is the over-under that they actually do come to an agreement and avert a strike? Just prognosticating. I don't do predictions. It makes me a very boring pundit. Um, you're supposed to just say stuff as if you know stuff, but we're talking sure. about 60,000 people. That's I can't right. pretend to know what they all think. Sure, sure. Um, the, it's very hard um, to vote down a contract like that. Um, they don't, the dissenting members don't have existing organization. Uh. It doesn't look like at least maybe any, but definitely not many of the local elected leadership. So the heads of some of the locals, um, it doesn't look like any of them are necessarily going to say that the members shouldn't ratify the contract, which no. also makes it harder. Um, but it's hard to say. I mean, no one has the full language. Everyone is sort of couching their dissent in. Sure. I have to see the language. Um, that said, you know, to bring up another thing, 10,000 John Deere workers are on strike, UAW yeah. members. Mm-hmm. Um, first strike there since 1986. Wow. Um, and they had very little existing organization. You know, none of them or very few of them would have been working in 1986. So they didn't have strike experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, you know, their elected leadership was very in favor of their contract. And they still voted it down overwhelmingly. Right. Um, and so they're on strike now. So it's totally possible um, and so that's, that is part and parcel of sort of what I'm talking about with this change in mood, mm-hmm. um, that working people are refusing to take bad deals. That's right. The ones that have unions are saying, actually, you know, we, we accepted, you know, we, we gave concessions in the last contracts. Mm-hmm. We lost stuff. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that anymore. Correct. Um, and in fact, we want to get back some of the things we gave up. Um, and, and just to give perspective, not to get into like a full labor report here, since no, that's no, not please. what the show is. But like, you know, John Deere has mm-hmm. had most profitable year on record. That's right. Um, and the proposed contract that they were offered not only had raises that were just about inflation level, so they wouldn't be making more money, mm-hmm. um, but it actually had concessions. So like the company wanted, John Deere wanted the workers to say okay to the idea that starting November 1st, new hires would no longer have a pension. No. So companies are still, even in this moment, mm-hmm. even the ones who are making ballooning profits, still think we're in the old moment uh, where workers are just going to say, okay, and mm-hmm. they're going to give more things up. Mm-hmm. So there's this mismatch and sort of an understanding of the moment we're in sure. um, from the CEOs who for them, things are great. Yeah. They don't understand why right. things have changed. Right. Um, and the working class who is sort of saying, I have nothing left to lose. Yeah, um, that's I'm going to take a stand. Yeah. I've survived the fucking plague. <laughs> right. Try and, me. And <laughs> try me. Please try me. <laughs> right. And seeing that your boss is willing to risk your health and that of your family. That's right changes your relationship to your boss you know plenty of workers have totally fine relationships with their bosses it's not like everybody has a bad manager but when you see and have to work through those conditions through a pandemic work through those conditions and also see you know someone's you know gilded I'm exaggerating here, but it's true at John Deere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some companies sure aren't having that sort of success, but definitely at John Deere, you're seeing the CEOs get, I mean, the CEO of John Deere got 160% raise last year. Get out of here. So it's hard. And these workers are begging for what? Like single digit, you know, contract entries. Right. And they're just saying, you know, we should have pensions and healthcare after we retire because your job destroys our bodies. Yeah, right. Um, so it's like, who's prob- who started this problem? Right, you know, right, it was right. you with these working conditions. Wow. Um, and so you're seeing stuff like that emerge. There's also, it's worth mentioning, some 30,000 healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente. In California. Um, yeah. In Oregon, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. across a range of unions. That's it's like right. this huge, I mean, such a massive company. That's right. Um, they have authorized a strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's complicated because, again, many unions involved. Um, healthcare is often like that. 
Um, but they're moving towards a strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another one that like, you know, after this interview, I'm like scheduling other ah! interviews with some of the members there. Ah, um, and so I would call those sort of the big ones to mm-hmm. keep track of. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things going on yeah, on the smaller cool. level. Like yeah. I just wrote about last week, a strike at a bourbon, ma- a, a distillery in Kentucky mm-hmm. um, that makes Evan Williams, oh, among wow. other things. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you post about that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so they've been on strike now for over a month. Wow. Um, it's 420 workers there. Wow. Kellogg's cereal plant workers are That's on strike. Right. That's a ton of people. Um, and so you're seeing this in all different parts of the private sector, mm-hmm. right? Which is important because usually it's just one. Yeah. Um, and so it reflects something, right? And yep. that's something significant. Uh, anyway, so that's what I've been up to. <laughs> I I cannot wait until we get to the current moment in in the interview because I'd, I'd like to understand what you think that this is a harbinger for or what you think this is signaling um, uh, since, you, uh, s- uh, since you're so close to this, uh, having to cover... Um, having to cover this for Jacobin, I'm really interested in, in uh, your analysis of, of this current moment, but mm-hmm. we are going to go back to the History. first moment. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Before you became Jacobin's <laughs> labor lady, you were Alex. I still am. <laughs> <laughs> you were and are Alex, the princess of PA, uh, but you, you grew up uh, in Pittsburgh. Yes. I did grow up in Pittsburgh. Actually, I was born in New York City, um, New York Hospital. Mm. And we, as with so many people, were priced out of New York pretty quick. Um, And so we moved to Pittsburgh when I was, I think, about eight. Um, And so I I say I grew up here um, Mm. because I don't have, you know, many memories of life in New York. Oh, okay. Um, But yeah, so my whole whole family's here. Okay. You guys, you started life in which borough in New York? Um, We were in Alphabet City in Manhattan. Um, So my parents were punks. Oh. Um, and that is sort of the punk area oh, okay. uh, or was no longer. It is oh, now right. just as expensive as anywhere else. Oh, I see, I see. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of the milieu they came out of. Ah. And that was the world I was born into. Oh, right on. So in, uh, in punks were getting priced out in the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s? I mean, they were they had long been getting priced out. But oh, for okay. my parents, it was we got out of there just before 2000. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And you guys, why? Why? Pittsburgh because the rest of their family was here so they had support no um actually they're not so we had no ties when I say my family's here I mean my parents and my brother oh you're okay um and uh but we moved here because my mom um got sort of a good job offer here um and given the lower cost of living it was uh my parents had a couple of road trips where they visited a few cities Mm -hmm. and uh I think they really fell in love with Pittsburgh and uh it has a big enough art scene. It's beautiful. It's yeah. affordable, and so College that's where town we. Yeah, that's where we grew up. Okay, all right. Um, so, and you, you, you said you have a sibling. I do. Uh huh. So, what was what was it like growing up here in in Pittsburgh? Was it like, was it pretty idyllic? Like, you know, kind of this this classic, I don't know, uh, picture of Americana, or was it was it different because you were born to two punks? It, that feels <laughs> disrespectful to say about your parents, but you. <laughs> but, yeah. No, yeah. I mean. And I guess the point of this show, so I've said to you before you started recording that I'm averse to talking sure. too much about my life, but I understand that's the point of the show. No, no, so no, I mean, we can go, no, so, we, so I'm happy to uh, sort of discuss that. Um, I don't want people to think I'm beating up you. <laughs> no, no, I just feel self-indulgent when I talk too much no, about my family. No, 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 no. Um, but yeah, I mean, my parents are not traditional parents. Um, so they like met in a punk band. Okay. Um, 
were that you know performed at CBGBs, mm. that kind of thing. So, so my family growing up was very not traditional, right? Meaning, so, like, like arts, like your dad wasn't a suit. Like that's mom right. had like a straight right. job, so, but dad yeah. wasn't a suit. He's, yeah. he's kind I, of artsy fartsy. What I mean is that I was sort of raised by all these people who I thought were, you know, we called them uncle, but they were just random weird poets sure. or um, uh, strange performance artists and things like that. Okay. Um, and so in that sense, I mean, not traditional, you know, you're nice. raised without religion. Oh. Um, my dad, uh, growing up when we first when we first moved to Pittsburgh, my dad was a stay at home dad mm -hmm. um, and my mom had the good paying job. Mm -hmm. Um, and my dad gave guitar lessons. Oh, um, really? And so, and we once, he tried to teach me guitar and I immediately started arguing with him and said, that's not how you play it. And he said, you know what? If you want to learn guitar, I will pay for someone else to teach you. <laughs> right. This is not going to work. Right, right, right. Um, and so, and I mean, eventually he did, he's a respiratory therapist now. Oh, right. Um, but so that was sort of the sense of the family. I, I wouldn't call it sort of Americana idyllic um, growing up in Pittsburgh. It was really nice. Uh -huh. Um but in Pittsburgh is a great place to grow up. There's lots of parks, um, but it's also a very strange city. Um, I think we can, you know, we can get it into it if you want, but like, yeah, what do there's, you mean when you say um, strange? Well, the public schools, for example, like all of them had metal detectors and you were searched going in and out. Mm. Um, it's an incredibly segregated city. Mm. Um, and so all of those things I think have to be mentioned when sure. discussing growing up here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had a perfectly okay childhood, I okay. would say. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was alt in the kind of, <laughs> artsy, music-y way that your parents kind of uh, con uh, continued parts of, you know, the punk, punk culture into family life. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, did you, did that, did that occur to you that you, at the time growing up, did that occur to you that you had a very different upbringing than maybe other, other children? It didn't really occur to okay. me because um, I just saw it as so normal. I mean, I remember one moment just when someone was talking about religion, mm -hmm. um, a classmate in school. And I said, you know, I didn't actually know anything about religion to mm. the point of, you know, I had struck me that, oh my God, you really believe in hell and this, uh, oh, that must wow. be terrifying. And uh -huh. they just looked at me like I was crazy for never, for not living that way. Oh, because um, you, because you had no reference points. Yeah, no reference points. I kind of still don't. I always joke sure. that I'm going to read the Bible so I can stay up with the culture. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I would say, you know, yeah, family is, you know, parents are still together, sure. um, made it through, uh, school. My brother is, uh, uh yeah, is still around, mm -hmm. um, and seems fairly happy. So in that sense, yeah, yeah um, okay. a standard upbringing. Did you, uh, we'll get to the schooling part in a second, but did you have an understanding, maybe not class as such growing up, but did you, did you have a sense that like, more or less in terms, not, not necessarily in the um, aesthetics of, of how you were brought up uh, around the art scene, but like materially, did you, did you think that more or less most, most kids grew up like you? Did you have a sense that like, oh, or did you think that you were rich? Did you think that you were poor? Like, how did you understand Yeah, that? I, I really, so I'm sure we can go into this, but like, I certainly didn't care or think much about politics growing up at all. I didn't care about politics whatsoever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I really can't try to go back in time and figure out what I thought. I mean, it was very clear in the schools here that um, not everyone, you know, that there's uh, immense violence going on in the city in certain mm. parts of the city and things like that. So I was didn't think everyone had a totally secure home or something like that. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it wasn't, it didn't really come to my attention. I mean, one thing that was hard to avoid noticing, even the, if you're the most apolitical person, is that, you know, they had gifted classes mm -hmm. um, in the schools and uh, those were almost entirely white. Uh, um, yeah. And that was something that everyone was very aware of. Sure, um, sure. And obviously now as an adult, 
it's very clear that that was a way to keep the white parents from taking their kids into private schools. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say that was the most unavoidable thing to notice about sort of stark differences among people's mm -hmm. experiences but of you schooling. Did, but you didn't feel, you didn't, growing up, you didn't feel rich or poor. You just kind of felt like, uh, no, I'm yeah. regular, I'm normal. Yeah, not rich or poor. I mean, there was always food in the house. Yeah. Um, you know, I knew we weren't rich. Uh -huh. um, How did you know you weren't rich? Uh, we had, I mean, we grew up in apartments and then my parents did eventually. We moved into a house um, when I was like in middle school. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, but, you know, it was like a one car family. And ah. so just it's hard to avoid noticing that, you know, on TV or otherwise in the news, you're like, sure. oh, yes, yeah, some people have a ton of money. Sure, sure. Um, and there were a couple kids I vaguely knew growing up who had, you know, the big houses um, in Pittsburgh, which isn't saying much because Pittsburgh, again, there's not a ton of wealth. Wealth here is not wealth elsewhere. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but that was always clear. You know, you'd go to a party at their house or something and you're like, oh, uh, right. this is a it. lot of space. I or like see. they have a car. Uh -huh. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the kid has a car and we're in high school. I got you. Um, but yeah, there wasn't, I just knew things, you know, things were fine. I right. Got you. Um, okay. Which I think. You didn't yeah. want for anything. Like you weren't, you didn't live in, in fear of like coming home and like the lights not being on. Or no, no, not really. Or, I guess. You're yeah. Right. Okay. okay. Which I, yeah, I feel very lucky uh, for given that in adulthood, there have been times when I really was struggling to yeah. pay for things. Of course. I was like, ah, right. This yeah. would have been horrible as yeah, a kid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 2008, I'm sure. I, I, I mean, I don't know. We'll get there, but I'm sure that that played a part in like the, the, your salad days as an adult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, did you, so you said that you didn't think about politics growing up as a child, which is understandable. Is that, is that because your, your parents weren't super political at home? You know, like you, they didn't, you know, it wasn't every day when we're, when we're sitting down for dinner, you know, dad is, is bitching about tax rates needing to be higher or mom is fussing because, you know, I don't know, Roe was under attack. Like, is that why you weren't really political as a child? Yeah. I mean, I, my memory is that there wasn't a lot of discussion of politics at the house, mm -hmm. but I really don't trust my memory of childhood. I have, a, I have a very bad memory in really? general. Yeah, extremely bad. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm always unclear about what actually was happening in the mm -hmm. house. I um, don't want to sell my parents short as if they weren't <laughs> talking about politics or something. Sure. But my memory is that it wasn't really a concern. Like okay. I, my dad is really interested in literature and poetry. Mm. And that to me is like what we would talk about, like whatever book he's reading or sure. some writer or music, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. um, and so those were the things that really were arts discussed. Were much yeah, more in arts. The forefront. Uh -huh. um, and so that memory doesn't really come up, though it's very funny how contradictory memory is mm -hmm. in that I know for a fact a close friend of my parents, um, this guy, Mel Packer, um, he's sort of a known activist in Pittsburgh, um, and he was very involved even in the founding of the Teamsters for Democratic Union, oh. the Reform Caucus um, in the Teamsters. He's a very left-wing, long-standing kind of labor militant. And there's a photo of me um, at the protests against the Iraq war and Mel, cause I'm this cute little kid has put me on the megaphone, right. To lead a <laughs> chant. And so it's very funny when I'm like, Oh, I didn't care about politics. I just, I don't know if I just assumed it was common sense to be against the war. Uh, um, and to me that didn't seem controversial. Sure, <laughs> Obviously sure, sure. it was. It didn't even seem political. It just right. It didn't like seem that common, political. Yeah. And part of that might be because it's Pittsburgh, where, which is a hmm. sort of liberal city. Mm -hmm. Um, surrounded by very conservative areas but you know there was a ton of people and going to those marches i remember i think probably late middle school going to anti-war marches mm -hmm. and it was just a thing that me and my friends did for fun ah. um sort of like oh it's a nice day the march is gonna be in the park you know <laughs> yeah. we're gonna just be able to yell and sure. stuff like that <laughs> um and so in that sense it's like it was politics and there was a sort of um 
some level of political engagement going on, but it just seemed like so common sense within the community I was in. I got you. Um, that didn't really seem like taking much of a stand. Mm. So, okay. Okay. But did you, so did you not have an understanding of your, though your parents were not very political in, in the discussions uh, that they had or what they, what they discussed most frequently at home, perhaps, did you have an understanding of their politics? Did you like, you know, were they, were they super annoying every time they went to vote? They like woke you up out of bed. Like you've got to no. come with me. You got to, you know, like, no, hmm. to me, it, it just barely came up. Okay. But did yeah. you did you have an understanding of their party ID or or their party affiliation? No, okay. not really. I mean, my They really uh, just kept I, it it's it's a little confusing because yeah i mean i think they're generally kind of just at the time at least were pretty straightforward liberals yeah, yeah. um okay. obviously culturally very liberal given that you were, yeah. we were raised by you know everyone around me was gay or trans or a weird artist yeah, in yeah. some sense um so in that sense there was a definite definite kind of liberalism or uh -huh. radicalism around certain things mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, my parents weren't the type to talk about voting or, you know, talk about how we need to go volunteer or something like that. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. And just to give, I guess, a little more context, my mom comes from a very conservative family. Ah. Um, and so I would say, yeah, in early adulthood, it was very unclear even exactly her sort of, um, worldview mm. um yeah because maybe it was shifting it had her. shifted yeah, yeah, i think yeah. radically for her growing up from I that see. to the new york punk scene i got you interesting yeah. okay okay um well how would your family slash community of you know artists and and fun people how <laughs> how would they have described you as a child like would i would people recognize the description that people give of you as a child like were you more or less the same or were you like hell on wheels or you know like I think I was a pretty happy kid, mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm not sure how else people would describe me other than that my much of my childhood was devoted to gymnastics. Ah, okay. Um, and so that was how I spent much of my time. Okay. Uh, you know, we're talking about 15, 20 hours a week in the gym, um, and then competitions on weekends. Okay. Um, and so that really was the locus as far as what I was up to and mm -hmm. kind of determined what I was like as a kid, you know, mm -hmm. because you sort of become very serious mm -hmm. in certain ways very quickly when you're in such an intense sport. Whoa. Did yeah. you, like... Did you love the competition of gymnastics? Well, like, were you like, like, did you have on blinders and maybe got a little mean to the other girls? Just like, fuck you, I'm gonna nail this ball. Like, no, definitely not, <laughs> definitely not. Um, gymnastics is, um, even though it's an individual sport, yeah. you are on a team. Uh -huh. And so, and again, when we're talking about 15 or 20 hours a week in the gym and mm -hmm. then more during the summer when you're not in school, mm -hmm. um, that's, I was seeing my coaches more than my parents. Whoa. I was with those girls all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that sense, you have a, a real sense of unity or, or at least, you know, they might not be your best friends, but you have to make do with them. So there's yeah. certainly no competition. At least there wasn't for me, okay. um, as at that level of gymnastics, um, with my teammates or anything like that. I just love the sense of dedication that mm. you could do something and just make, it was up to you to be as good as you could be. Whoa. Right. So sort you of. internalized your own discipline for, <laughs> for that. Like you just, I like, think so. Okay. Yes. Um, huh. Yeah. Um, there's something, I mean, I still, you know, being a writer is similar in that it's just up to you how much you do or don't sure, do. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, this sense of sort of work as hard as you hmm. want about the thing you care about. And uh, as with many young gymnasts, I think, you know, I, I was obsessed with being in the Olympics, hmm. stuff like is that. Is that what got you into it? Like you would watch the Olympics as a, as a little kid and you're just like, ooh, I want to do that. Like I don't think so. Hmm. Um, as my mom tells it, like she enrolled me in some little kid, you know, as, as many girls are enrolled when you're like three or four. Mm -hmm 
or five, mm-hmm. you know, some kid gymnastics class once a week. Yeah. Um, and I just took to it very immediately. And oh, the coaches were like, it. she's good. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I just loved it. Hmm. I, I can't tell you why. Um, what was your but, best event? Uh, I would say balance beam, really? which as an adult now, as no longer a gymnast is crazy to me because that is so scary to think about that's like the scary one yeah uh, you have four inches you're four feet above the ground yeah. and just and you're doing flips i mean Whoa. i don't understand how i was able to psychologically do that Whoa. Um, yeah did you did you ever like give your parents a scare like were there any bad injuries that you had i got very lucky and that that there weren't bad injuries oh, um okay. i think i did break my ankle once but we never ah. went to the doctor it might have just been a sprain you did go um, to the doc it just came back together th- so this is part of the culture of gymnastics which is very bad and oh! I, uh, is I'm that sorry. is that well I, i'm just we don't have to get into the culture of american gymnastics but you know it's this these little kids sort uh-huh. of perfecting themselves and putting up with a bunch of pain because uh. you don't have time to heal because oh uh, you take a few days off like you're behind right even um, but even though you weren't like uh, I, I mean i don't think this, this is was this. once i was competing okay, not okay, when okay, i was okay. a little kid okay. um but yeah, I had a I had a teammate who I one teammate broke her wrist and kept competing on it. Didn't go to the doctor. Kept didn't. competing on it. Yeah, and another yeah, and another um, sprained her vertebrae. I guess is the thing. And actually, she kept working out on it and competing on it uh, to the point when eventually the pain was so bad that she did finally get the care she needed and she had to wear a back brace when Bye. she wasn't. But she would still be at the gym working out, yay, yay, and then she would just <laughs> put the brace on when she was done. I'm so, in such pain. Um, <laughs> it is a very, when you see all these stories about the other types of abuses going on yeah. in gymnastics, this is part and parcel of that culture of just sort of putting up with stuff. You, is, is, is it, okay, I'm not, because I'm not understanding. Is it because someone, is, like you, if you went, someone's just like, toughen up or 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 you or you learn to not wince because you don't want someone to like sideline you like i'm not help me understand because i don't get it yeah i think it's a mix i mean there's definitely coaches who are i mean my coaches were not abusive or bad um but it is i mean they did have expectations of like you're going to be very strong and you can put up with a lot wow um and so i and i think part of it is the internalization of like I i can you know mind over matter i can control anything um, you know, I just need to knuckle down. Um, and so I think it was all a mix, but I know definitely at the more elite levels, it's a lot of pressure on from the coaches or uh-huh. from other people where it's like your family has spent so much money to get you there. Like, how dare you take some time off? Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. How many, how many years of your, of your life were you doing gymnastics? Uh, it's because it starts so early. It's very funny that like I quit by the time, like I was starting high school. Um, and yet That's it was a long time though, from it, what, four to Something 15? like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, but for me, when I think of real childhood, you know, before teen years, uh-huh. it's gymnastics. Okay. Like, like that was just your world. Yeah. That was your shit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Wow. I didn't know that. I would. Okay. That's why we do this. this is why we, <laughs> it's very funny. Things. Actually, I never discuss it. So a lot of my friends have no idea about it. Why don't you um, discuss it? It just, it's so, it feels like a closed chapter in my life. Okay. Right. Like just so long ago. Like so long ago. It has nothing to do with the person I am today. Yeah. I mean, it definitely has something to do with the person I am today, but at the, How? in the, com- in the, in the competitive kind of, I'm definitely not competitive. It was never about that, okay. but the intensity, I, see. Uh, I, I would see. say I see. is, it was bred in that environment. <laughs> okay. All right. When you are a gymnast, you're using, you're expending so many calories that, and you're working out so much and you're also eating very healthy or at least trying to, um, that you're not really hitting puberty, right? Your body is kind of in starvation mode. Um, and so, can I ask a dumb question? 
can't you shouldn't you just eat more then you can eat a lot but we're talking about expending thousands of calories in a workout so you you there's no that you you'd always be at a deficit no matter yeah, how pretty much i see okay. yeah okay. um or at least especially at elite levels so that's why when you see gymnasts even though they're like maybe already retired and maybe they're full they're in their mid-age like their 30s or 40s yeah. or something they're still like 410 right and weigh almost nothing um, and that's because your body doesn't hit puberty when it's starving like that. Oh. Um, and then there's the impact of all the harsh landings, right, which also affect growth and make your joints terrible. I mean, I definitely have bad joints. From Seriously? That. Yeah, I got lucky. They're not terrible, but your body just starts deteriorating so rapidly, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which is why, you know, everyone in gymnastics is like retired by age 24 from oh. the sport. Um, but yeah, I quit in time to hit puberty. And so um, when I quit... I think I grew six inches and gained something like 30 pounds in the course of maybe six months. Oh um, and imagine being a teenage girl. You're already in a normal situation. You're often freaking out about your body changing. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, I had honed this a total control over what my body was like uh -huh. you know you're constantly you have a six-pack things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that was like a, a, a horror movie for me Whoa. I remember visiting my old gym just months after I had quit um just to see my old teammates and coaches mm -hmm. and I towered over them and Whoa. I could not believe it it was <laughs> it was like living in a in some sort of nightmare scenario for me Whoa. Um, but yeah, so that is, uh, that's why when you see gymnasts, uh, they're always still tiny. Did you quit because you were hungry? <laughs> no, I actually, I quit because my parents said I had to. Oh, okay. They were like, okay, we've had enough. There's this moment. Gymnastics is this really expensive sport. Yes. Um, and so there comes a moment when it's like, for, unless you're from a rich family, yeah. um, you either need to really commit uh -huh. and, uh, either go to a gym that specializes in sort of higher levels mm -hmm. of training. Mm -hmm. um, many people are homeschooled, right? They move somewhere oh, to wow. a new city. They stay with a family whose daughter is at the gym. Oh. Um, and so your whole life becomes gymnastics. Mm -hmm. um, and so for my parents, again, we weren't rich. And so they're like, look, we understand this is what you love. Uh -huh. And so we're going to find a way to support it. If, but it's either you're fully committing uh -huh. or we can't do this anymore. We don't have the money to do this as a hobby because it just becomes so expensive. Were you heartbroken? I was. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was so, so angry. Oh, you were angry at them. Like, I was very angry at oh, them. Wow. Yeah. How long did it take you to move through that? Took a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah I couldn't tell you exactly how long, uh -huh. but I was furious. Like um, resentful? I, yeah, resentful. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, when you're a kid, it just seems unfair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, this is, of course, my family is my real family, but my coaches, you know, like I said, I saw them more, a lot of the time I spent more time with them than my own parents. And yeah. so, you know, to lose that and be given this ultimatum mm -hmm. was, uh, yeah, I was very angry. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Oh, goodness. But um, ultimately, I'm very glad about it, actually. Oh, you like in retrospect, you're like in retrospect. Thank God. Yeah. Because uh, then I got to have like a regular high school years oh, and okay. uh, and I got out before I got really hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think it, my life would have looked very different. I mean, if you fully jump in and yeah. commit mm -hmm. um, and then the odds that you're actually going to succeed at the level that you're dreaming of mm -hmm. are very slim. Uh, so who knows what that would have looked like. Mm. But yeah, I'm very grateful for the normal teen years I had nice. compared to spending all my time shuttling to and from gyms and competitions. Mm. What was, so describe your, your normal bitchin' teen years after, <laughs> <laughs> after you left gymnastics. <laughs> um, well, yeah, at first I had to learn how to make friends because okay. I had only ever had time for my oh, teammates. Okay. Um, and, uh, but... 
Yeah, my teen years, I think, were were great. I, I had a great time. Like, I had a good group of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, Pittsburgh's a city, right? This wasn't the suburbs. And so we spent much of our time just sort of, like, on buses, going around the city, mm-hmm. hanging out, uh, causing trouble, you know, like, shoplifting from stores, doing the <laughs> classic teen stuff. Uh, <laughs> what were you shoplifting, Alex? Uh, like, lip gloss? I feel like I'm not supposed to say on record, oh, right? Oh, come uh, on. I'm not nothing, a cop. Nothing huge. Okay. Uh, it was just, uh, I got like the- Bubble um, gum? Yeah, small things. Okay. There, for some reason, I mean, it was, became a competition. I think it was the Rite Aid in the neighborhood. I can't remember which, <laughs> of like how much stuff could you steal from there? At uh, once? Yeah. Or you mean like yeah. oh, during the course like of a week? Like all the time. Every oh. time you go in there. Um, and so for some reason, I had a friend who really loved stealing the extremely corny, stupid looking socks that they sell at Rite Aid, which oh. always have these stupid patterns on them. They're very cheap. Yeah. Um, and so I actually, a few years ago, I was clean. Yeah, you know, I was cleaning uh, up my apartment and getting rid of a bunch of clothes. I found a pair of socks that were very clearly stolen from Rite Aid in <laughs> high school, and I could not believe I had somehow hung on to those. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I had friends who. Yeah, I mean, it was just constant. Every you know, clothing stores, whatever. That's sort of like we were Whoa. like we were very harmless delinquents. I would say. So you replaced gymnastics with petty theft. That <laughs> yes, was that was right. how you redirected yeah, the totally. intensity energy of <laughs> of your recreational life that's uh, okay. right all right um were you did you did did you stay ah we didn't i didn't know what type of student you were but i presume that you were in the gifted and talented program like did you stay like uh, on track scholastically in in your high school years yeah i mean i got decent grades pretty good grades um i didn't think much about going to college until sort of later high school years really um i just didn't really enter my mind that much hmm. um i guess it was assumed i would do that um, but yeah, my grades were always fine. Absenteeism was a big problem. I was constantly skipping school to go theft. Well, <laughs> <But>, yeah, <laughs> or to like hang out in the park. Pittsburgh has these beautiful parks. Oh, I was okay. always reading, uh-huh. um, and so often there was a coffee shop not far from the high school um, where I would always skip school and go read whatever book I had out from the library huh. there, and then be very paranoid because I'd be afraid someone from the school who worked there would yeah, see me. Yeah. Uh, but there were good umbrellas that kind of <laughs> hid you. There are some big plants. They have big sun flowers at, outside of this coffee shop oh, okay. um, so you could sort of sit near them and be hidden i do recall one time though uh, i was skipping school and reading in frick park which is one of the big parks um near where i went to high school and um and i was in where i would read was there's just this big field kind of thing it was impossible to hide mm-hmm. if you're there mm-hmm. um, and i was just in the sunshine reading a book and my gym class um, had sometimes they would instead of having regular gym, we would take a big walk around the park or something because mm. it was so close to the school. <laughs> and sure enough, I see my gym class that I'm supposed to be in coming down the pa- the pathway. Uh-huh. And I I'm not kidding. I put the book over my head and just like you just thought like I'm very still. No yeah, one it's will like if notice. They can't see my face, and I have no idea if they notice. But um, wow. but yeah. So absenteeism was definitely you know again the sort of like petty uh, sort of um, infractions of a of an okay childhood. But was it? Do you think why? Like were you were you bored or did you just wanted to be a badass? You were you know you thought this was you being 
a punk like, like <laughs> no i think everyone skipped school all the time um <laughs> that <laughs> frequently where they pretty knew frequently. which sunflowers to hide behind I think a lot of people i mean i think a lot of people were skipping school okay. to do all sorts of stuff sure, um, sure, sure. i mean there is obviously a ton of drug use as is true in america sure, everywhere sure, sure. um and so that was a big part of why people were skipping school all yeah, the time okay. to just go smoke weed or yeah. something um, and yeah, I don't know. I just preferred doing my own thing or hanging out with friends to okay. being in school, as I think probably most teenagers do. Okay. Right. I do remember getting in a fight with an with a friend of mine. Uh, not a fist fight. Oh, I was like an argument Alex. because we had a system <laughs> where now I'm giving secrets to anyone who goes to Taylor Allardyce. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sure they have better security systems now. But there was a very uh, rarely used side door mm-hmm. um, that. I would always use when I would leave during the day Mm -hmm. and you would just stick a pencil or a pen or something there so that you can get back in. And one time this old friend of mine, I come back from like just being out for a couple hours or something Mm -hmm. and it's gone. And I just assumed, okay, someone, you know, by mistake that happened or someone else found it or something. And then later the friend said, I took it out because you need to stop skipping school all the time. Okay, calm down, mom. Yeah, I was like, wow, that is the most uncool thing (laughs) anyone could ever do. Uh, wow. But I kept decent grades, uh, okay. so right. yeah. This your your parents never got like upset with you. Did they never found out about the absenteeism? I think they were aware of the absenteeism. I feel like they actually did. You know, at a certain point, the school contacts the parents and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that happened with my brother. Uh-huh. Um, I think my parents did have to deal with whether it was like uh, just meetings at school or some sort of court thing. I can't remember. But they, we had a, at that point in high school, we had the house we'd moved into was a pretty short walk from the school. Mm -hmm. And so they were aware that often me and my brother were just inviting people over to Uh, hang out like on the porch or in the house Mm -hmm. uh, during the school day. (laughs) They worked all the time at that point. So my parents were not like around during the day much. I see. Um, And uh, yeah, so they were aware, but you know, I was, I wasn't up to anything too bad. And so I think they were like, okay, we'll take it. She's getting okay grades. Okay. All right. So we're not, we're not going to ride her too Yeah. My brother is a little more of a problem. And Mm. I think so that also got me off the hook. Ah, because you look like an angel. Exactly. Right. Okay. Interesting. But by this time you, you guys, in addition to your petty theft and your absenteeism (laughs) at school, you are starting to, um, you know, uh, be involved in some like civic protests a little bit around the war with friends like in your in your casual time like are you guys uh, is it is this becoming a point of a big point of discussion for you all not or? at all okay it was for other people but not, again for me it didn't register at all okay. like it's i just, remember this is a way to hang out with my friends yep. and yell it was just like hanging out or stealing stuff from writing just a thing to do okay um uh, <laughs> And I do recall, I mean, during the Obama campaign, uh-huh. obviously some friends got a lot more excited about politics and yeah. started talking more about politics. And it just fully went in one ear out the other. Mm. Like I just didn't care that much. Mm. Um, I had one friend who was sort of, I, he was from a richer family and it was very clear, like he was very politically engaged. He was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. Mm. Um, I do recall him discussing these things with me and yeah. me just not caring. Uh, um, okay. And so it was like, oh yeah, Obama won. That's obviously good news. Yeah. But beyond that, that was the extent of my caring okay. about the situation. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I wasn't like doing get out the vote or something like no, that. No, no. You just, you're observing. You're saying like, oh, okay, this seems cool. You guys seem into it. I'm, you know, I'm over here doing my thing. Right. Like, oh, it's obviously uh, better for Obama to win than the other guy and yeah, like yeah. it is good to have a black president sure. and that was but you it, weren't invested in beyond not that. particularly no. I gotcha. okay um so when it was time for you to go to school you had you had decided finally that like this is something you would be interested in whereas before what you you just 
you thought that college wasn't interesting or or this wasn't something quote for you or what like i really don't recall giving it that much thought to be honest but just Um, one day you woke up just like i'll go to college yeah i think it was just realizing that other friends were giving it more thought like they were really taking it seriously Uh, and so i was like oh okay this is something (laughs) i should take seriously too Uh um yeah and uh in pittsburgh for if you're from the public schools like you tend to go to either University of Pittsburgh, if mm-hmm. you stay around, mm-hmm. um, or Penn State, uh, which is like the party school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sort of like alt kids, you know, um, they go to Temple University in oh, Philly. Yeah. Uh, and so my friends were kind of split between those th- three things. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I knew that I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to stay in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I oh, wanted to all. go see the world. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I did apply to Temple because Pittsburgh has something called the Pittsburgh Promise where if you get into a college within the state, almost all of them, you get this incredible discount where it's wow. like, it's really not that much money to go to college. Mm. Um, and that's in part to encourage, you know, like Pittsburgh Public Schools doesn't have the greatest uh, college oh. <laughs> entrance or anything like wow. that rate. Um, and so I definitely applied to Temple, but mm-hmm. that was, you know, my scene was like the alt kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up going to Boston University. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. BU. Did you, now when you, when you, when you were, when it was time to leave for school, like did your parents or, uh, and or community, like, did they, did they have like a dream for you? Like Alex is going to be our blank. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know that they did. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I had some level of interest in maybe writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that I should have brought up already, um, that was sort of this like formative experience in high school was that, so I started working the week I turned 16 Mm -hmm. at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, and I stayed there until the week I went to college. Um, and a place called Bangkok balcony in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. Thai place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I used that money to go to, I went to Europe for a summer Mm -hmm. after my junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I just went by myself. Uh, by with, yourself? With no plans. Uh, no, just, with no adult I Yeah, none. Oh, um, wow. I just, uh, I remember my dad freaking out because I said to my parents, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom knew I was serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad just assumed I would never be able to find the money to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was working four nights a week at a restaurant. Even during school? Yeah. Okay. From age 16 on. Wow. Um, and so, and I obviously wasn't paying rent. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so actually I had pretty cheap and I was stealing all these things <laughs> instead of buying them. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so in fact, you know, then like a year later mm-hmm. um, or six months later, I said to my parents, hey, just a heads up, I'm booking the plane tickets to Paris. Um, I got round trip tickets, I think. Um, wow. And I remember my dad freaking out um, yeah. and asking my mom, how did she do this? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if this is safe at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that I was there for a few months. Um, I was in France all over the place. And then I got talked into going to Italy. And then I got a job under the table in Venice. Whoa. Um, at 17. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I remember drafting these emails to inform my parents that I had extended my trip and actually was in a different country. And Wait, you you <laughs> could you were you didn't need a as a minor you didn't need a uh, your parent to no. sign off on the ticket buying or anything. No, uh, and you could like book your own hotels and la la. Yep. Without a credit card, or you had a credit card. I think card. I had a debit card, and that was that was good enough. <laughs> I guess. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my memory is faint of the logistics of this. I mean, this was before, of course, like smartphones were something yeah. that everyone had. Yeah. Um, and so I remember I had like a little notebook that I had written down, like, here's the metro stop in Paris near the cool coffee shop or Whoa. near the good bookstore, Shakespeare and Company. And so I just had notes. Okay. And, uh, 
then I just showed up and started wandering you around. You're just and, an independent woman. I'm uh-huh. out here doing what the fuck I want. Yeah. At 17. Wow. And okay. so I was interested in like travel or like different cultures. Uh-huh. And so I ended up majoring in international relations at BU. Uh-huh. Um, wait, wait, wait. Why, what, 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 what was the driving impetus to like go have this like eat, pray, love at 17 <laughs> in Europe? Like, I don't know. I mean, again, like writing and sort of literature was a big part of my upbringing because of my dad, especially. Yes. yes. Um, and so, you know, I was interested in the war- that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it just seemed like a good experience to have is like, go do- have your own thing, right? Go explore the world. Mm-hmm. I don't be in Pittsburgh for a few months. Sure. Um, and so I remember like I went to Shakespeare and Company, the sort of famous um, English language bookstore sto- um, in Paris, mm-hmm. where they would let you, if you were a writer, um, at least in the past, they would mm-hmm. uh, let you stay for free upstairs mm-hmm. um, or even sleep. They had kind of beds in the oh. bookstore. Huh. And then you would work like a couple hours of a shift uh-huh. at the bookstore. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was like, I'll do stuff like that. Mm. I'll just sort of live this life that actually is kind of hard to live now compared to sort of the golden age of those things. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember having a conversation with someone who was working at the bookstore. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in doing this. You know, I don't have any set plans. And uh, they said, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I know that the owners really don't want any teenagers doing this. Mm, right, <laughs> um, and right. I was like, I'm not going to be able to pull this off. <laughs> no. I'm so obviously 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I didn't look older. I looked like a high school kid who was on the lamb. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, like Liam Neeson was going to bust through the door at yeah. any moment to bring you back home. <laughs> exactly. We actually, that was around when the take, when Taken came out. <laughs> and my parents had a rule that they were not going to watch it till I got back. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then we all watched it when I was safely home. <laughs> Uh, and my dad was so glad he hadn't seen it before. Um, wow. But yeah, and you know, it's just just sort of this like quasi kind of bohemian uh, lifestyle. Like I was working in a hostel in Venice um, that just paid room and board, right? I had like, they would give me like 10 bucks or the equivalent in Euro uh, to like uh, go get a drink or something with the guests. Uh, mm. and But that was it, right? Wow. So um, I was just kind of enjoying myself and hanging what out was, with people. What was the best, other than not being in Pittsburgh, like what was the yeah. best part about like frolicking about europe as a minor <laughs> i well all of it every, every, every aspect of it yeah, yeah. i mean because again like you know you could do whatever you want i was hanging out with uh all sorts of people that i the type of people i never would have met you know you could drink yeah. in europe yeah. Um, yeah. at that age and so i was just kind of living this uh hmm. preview of an adult lifestyle it wasn't it wasn't nerve-wracking at all you weren't nervous you weren't scared no um this does sound made up uh as a story in that um there was one moment okay. that was scary which was um I so I changed my I changed my flight. Um, I decided I'm gonna go to Italy because uh-huh. this guy who I was staying in hostels, so you have roommates all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this guy was an artist um, from Canada, a painter who was maybe a year older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he we overlapped for a night and we hung out. You know that's how it would work, right? Whoever you happen to be with, if yeah. you're alone, you're like you want to go out, you want to just do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had just come from Italy. And he made a very passionate case for, you know what, you have to go. It's so beautiful. Venice is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I did, you know, I canceled my return flight. I buy a train ticket. Mm -hmm. um, And I was going to the south of France to Nice. And I went to Cannes and a couple other places. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, okay, then I'm going to take the train uh, to get to Venice. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a damning story in that my memory is that there was a strike um, oh. at the railroad, uh-huh. uh, at the, among the train worker, the workers. Um, and, uh, 
I forget exactly how this transpired, but I'm on the platform trying to figure out what to do. My train is not coming, uh -huh. the train to Milan, mm -hmm. which is what you had to take to get to Venice. And I just start chatting up this couple that's near me and they're Australian. Mm -hmm. um, and they too were in the same situation. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they had gotten new tickets for like the last train out mm -hmm. and I couldn't get them in time. And we proceed to smuggle me onto the train. I'm so <laughs> sorry. How did we do that? <laughs> it was great. Um, and I remember the conductor coming through and they put their big bags, you know, they were sort of like backpacking. Uh -huh. uh, they put them like in front of me. So I know. There goes that sunflower. That, that was exactly. That you had Here good we go again. Hiding, yeah. um, and, <laughs> and so I would say that was the only scary moment was uh, wondering if I was going to get kicked off the train in wow. the French countryside or yeah, something. I guess. Uh, and then I remember be. I got to Milan and had like five minutes to transfer to the other train yeah. that, as planned and uh i ran as fast as i could across all the platforms Whoa. right to get to the train and uh i remember thinking you know i wish i could stay in touch with that couple they yeah. really helped me that, so right. much thank you for being homies yeah exactly <laughs> but no otherwise i wouldn't say the only scary thing was that i had no money and uh so I was very concerned about whether I could get a plane ticket home. How much money did you leave the United <laughs> States with to go to Not Europe? Not that much. Uh, like 800 bucks? Probably more than that. I mean, more than that, I think. Okay, I right. think we're talking like up to $2,000 or something like that. For a whole summer? Yeah. In Europe? It wasn't supposed to be the whole summer. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, yeah, then living expenses were covered once I was working in sure. Italy. Uh, but yeah, we were talking slim margins. My parents did not kick in a dime. They may have helped me with the plane ticket back. I oh, can't remember. Okay. Because obviously they were very sad on me finishing high school. Yeah, so absolutely. I think most parents, if they could, would be like, fine, I'm going to help you get home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then your little ass going to stay home. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Then you're never leaving again. <laughs> Interesting. And nobody could tell you shit when you got back after your summer in Europe. Like, exactly. Yeah, nobody could tell Miss Thing a goddamn right. nothing. Okay. Yeah, I All remember right. my... um. My mom always mentions this, that um, the other parents of like my friends, yeah. my female friends especially, were very angry at her and my father um, yeah. for letting me do this. That's right. Because they're like, the kids are getting ideas. Yeah, that that's right. They're like, are you out of your mind letting her do this? <laughs> like, and now my daughter thinks this is like a normal thing to do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and so, yeah, when I got back, I was like, oh, I'm cool now. Right? Yeah, I had that's this right. cool experience. That's right. I'm not going uh, to class. <laughs> yeah. I don't need French class. I lived there. Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. But I got back in time to finish senior year. Okay. Right on. But, I, but, that, but that experience, like, that's what did it for you? Like, that's seems in retrospect a very formative experience yeah, for me. Yeah, I guess so. That's still blowing. It's, I mean, that's fine. You made it your one piece. To me, so the mind-blowing thing is how I did that without like a phone. Also. And did you even did you speak to travel French now. or Italian? I spoke some French. Um, like, for, uh, for some reason, uh -huh. my elementary school here like offer it was like it used took French oh. um, which is very funny because that's so impractical in Pittsburgh Correct. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so yeah I was uh, I knew some French and in middle school we had there, there were a few languages you could take but obviously I just kept taking French yeah 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 um, okay. so I did get by in French okay. uh, Italian I could not speak at all no um, but it was you know I could get by with French wow. and English yeah and yeah. you did that without a phone I don't I yeah okay I, I know I doubt I still know any French haven't really had the chance to yeah, practice right, sure, since then sure. sure wow okay when you were leaving for school after having this inappropriately raucous time in europe as a minor uh <laughs> you decided on inter international relations why like what about what about your experience in europe led you to believe that this 
or or uh, prompted you to this field of study? Like, did you have a specific idea about what you wanted to do? Like, uh, like, uh, talk me through that. I feel like I never sound dumber than when I explain my logic, oh my which God. was which was like, oh, well, I'm interested in traveling, and so international. Uh, the other thing, I mean, I quickly started focusing on <laughs> climate change policy. Oh. Um, and this, which, you know, was sort of, what, what got you there? I knew the world was getting warmer and okay. it seemed like that was the most pressing thing. Um, I always kind of cared about the environment. I loved animals growing up. Um, and so it just seemed like, okay, if you're going to focus on kind of international, uh, politics or whatever, this is the area I'm most concerned with. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, so that's what I focused on. So it got a lot more coherent quickly, um, as far as my decision, but fully it had been like, I just want to be able to travel around the world. And mm -hmm. so that's right there in the name of the, <laughs> <laughs> of the major. Um, and, uh, it was a huge, I think it was the biggest major in, in at BU, mm -hmm. um, or at least one of them. It was like a big focus at the school. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't even know that I'd necessarily chosen it immediately so much as sort of within the first year, it made sense as a focus. Um, yeah. And so that's what I started doing. And again, at that point, there, a political consciousness started mm -hmm. forming, obviously. What year is this around when we're This is the first year of college. So, no, no, no. Oh. What, what year is it? Uh, <laughs> good question. This, I graduated high school in 2010. Um, so mm, okay. 2010, 2011. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and yeah, so my first year of college, um, I start studying politics mm -hmm. and, um, but at a very institutional level, right? Yeah. So it's, BU's program is basically a feeder to the State Department or mm. or nonprofit kind of NGOs, mm -hmm. um, big NGOs, uh, international ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was sort of there's this common sense core of liberal pragmatism or realism mm -hmm. um, that kind of gets fed into you through that program. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were studying or interested in like, you know, institutions affiliated with the UN. Mm. Um, so sort of global negotiations that happen by elites, mm -hmm. um, somewhat bureaucratic mm -hmm. kind of endeavors. Um, and this kind of general uncritical modernization theory, this kind of liberal uh, progress is happening globally. Mm. That's kind of the worldview mm -hmm. um, that you're coming to. But again, at that point, it had yet to ever occur to me that politics is not just what happens at negotiations or something uh, like that. Mm -hmm. It's not just Obama mm -hmm. and then like these bureaucrats at the State Department mm -hmm. deciding things. Because mm -hmm. um, it had just never occurred to me, nor had I ever really seen it. You know, I'd seen anti-war protests, yeah. obviously. Um, so I wasn't totally unaware that there was an extra institutional or kind of popular politics mm -hmm. um, in activist world, but it just hadn't really sunk in. Um, I and we can get to Occupy, of course, which sort of is what changed that. Um, but at that point, when I started studying politics, it really just seemed like, OK, if I want to make a difference in the world mm -hmm. and I want to do something good, um, this is where I will do it. You know, I'll get involved in doing climate change policy or negotiations or uh, something like that at, at the institutional level. Yeah. Whether mm -hmm. at a think tank or some sort of NGO or government organization even. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's where that'll happen. If you want to make a difference, that's okay. what you'll do. So you had just kind of like a normie liberal pragmatic view of politics yeah. when you matriculated. Yeah. Okay. Or at least that's what sort of formed very quickly at gotcha. BU. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I mean, again, I never voted for a Democrat, never was interested in kind of electoral politics. Mm -hmm. I just sort of thought like, oh, that's kind of a, that's a farce or like a sideshow or something I don't really care about. Mm -hmm. I, you know, wasn't invested in liberalism, mm -hmm. but I was like, I'll just do this other stuff. That's I'll just do this climate change thing Yeah, this here. seems like sort of substantive, right? This ah. is where we can sort of hammer out stuff gotcha. away from 
this kind of spectacular celebrity kind of stuff that's going on in huh. electoral politics. Interesting. Yeah. And and during and during undergrad, at some point, you just alluded to it. Like, was Occupy taking off in a very big way in Boston, and that and that kind of got your attention, and and maybe started to to crack open your mind to another set of possibilities. So actually, it was a very dramatic break. Um, oh, so. Occupy starts in New York City, obviously. Yeah. And I've like read an article about it, maybe from the New York Times or something. Seems totally unappealing to me. Mm. Um, I just thought it was a bunch of hippies. Um, Did which, it feel unserious to you? Somewhat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, somewhat unserious. And also, I, I mean, the word I probably would have used was embarrassing. Ah. Um, you know, hippies, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm from a punk family. <laughs> we hate hippies. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, it seemed unserious mm. or sort of embarrassing or like carnivalesque. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't pay that much attention to it. Um, then it starts up in Boston a mm. couple days later. Mm -hmm. um, and my friend from school, from BU, tells me, you know, he wants to go take the tea, the subway down to the, the encampment, which I think had probably just started the day before. Mm -hmm. um, and he's like, you should come with me. Um, we, we just check it out. We'll hop back on the train, come back to campus. And uh, I believe, if my memory serves, that I ignored him for a little while mm -hmm. uh, and then finally said, OK, why not? Mm. Um, and so we get off the train at South Station in mm -hmm. downtown Boston, mm -hmm. um, which is this like kind of sprawling. Um, it's where the buses are as well. Um, commuter trains and stuff. And we go up outside. There's a big intersection. Diagonal from it is where the encampment was. Mm -hmm. um, and it's called Dewey Square. Mm -hmm. is, and it's hellish. Um, it's sort of crammed in. It's this private public land partnership next to a bunch of like very loud kind of fast moving um, lanes of traffic mm. um, in the financial district. And uh, so, yeah, not a hospitable, fun environment. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, we enter the encampment and me and Brandon agreed to just sort of split up. We're going to wander around okay. to sort of check out the carnival, basically. Yeah. Um, and we'll find each other because it's not that big. And then we'll get back on the train. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't tell you exactly how it went, but, you know, I start wandering. There's this pathway that's crowded with these tents on either side. Um, obviously people probably know this by now, but you know, they're labeled, right? Like there's the media tent, the mm -hmm. food tent, there's mm -hmm. all this food coming in, mm -hmm. these donations, there's pizza everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also tents that are people's, people are already living in, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you almost feel like you're intruding on someone's home because yeah. they're, you know, they're, they have the flap open and you can see them like hanging out yeah. or doing work in there. Their shoes are on a mat, you know, or sort of in the walkway. Mm -hmm. Um, everything's threatening to spill into the walkway. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was just something I'd never, it was so weak. Weird, mm. that I just got very interested in it. What and was so weird? The, the the confusion, the chaos. Just why were they people doing this? Ah, okay. Um, okay. To me, it was. I still thought it was embarrassing, but it was intriguing ah. to be there. Ah. Um, and but really, I think uh, sort of caught my attention was I remember I was just sort of chatting with people. Everyone was very quick to chat you up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I started talking to this young woman from another country with more restrictive sort of speech codes, things like that, um, more repressive environment as far as individual rights. Um, and she was just in awe of the encampment. And mm -hmm. we started chatting. She must have been a college student, too. And that's why we started talking. Um, and she was like, you know, people can just do say whatever they want. They can try to enact the world they believe in here. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you believe in something, you can say that and try to build towards it. Mm -hmm. I just looked at her like, is that true? Uh, I have never thought of it that way before. And again, I mean, I was 18. Yeah. Um, and uh, and sure, I started seeing it very differently. I was like, huh, this is, you know, I start talking to other people there. Oh, again, within the first hour of being there or something. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and people are insisting to me that, you know, they ask me what I do and I say, oh, I'm interested in like climate change policy. I'm going in my first year of college. Um, and they're like, you know, that those institutions are never going to let us do what we need to do to mm. fix that problem. Mm. Um, you know, and that's true for all these other problems. You know, these things are conservative institutions. They're designed to stop you from kind of radical change. Uh, uh, and they're like, and so we need to exist and operate outside of those institutions to force change. Uh, well, what would you, when this is, when this is being said to you, what is going through your mind? I, it was like being at the zoo was how it felt. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what? Or like meeting an alien. <laughs> what is this language that I've never heard before? Mm. Again, I mean, I recently wrote about um, a rare personal essay for me about um, what uh, the 10 year anniversary of Occupy just yeah, happened yeah. Um, and what it meant for me and for people like me, especially of my kind of age and generation in the United States. Um, and it was this sense that what I, how I ended it was I said, you know, it was a door to left-wing politics. And, you know, I'd never even known it existed, much less been presented with an entrance, right? Because uh. um, the United States left is very small. Um, yeah. It does not reach uh, a lot of people, maybe even most people aren't even aware of it. Yeah. Um, and that was true for me. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up in this liberal town, um, but I really, it hadn't entered my consciousness in a serious way that there was another way of understanding the world. Huh. Um, and here people were speaking very earnestly to me um, and telling me, and they seemed very believable. I mean, their arguments were true that I was constantly studying in school that what was needed to address climate change was nowhere near being negotiated uh, by, you know, every single climate agreement is totally inadequate to the science and right. every country is, especially the United States, is constantly pulling out or yeah. weakening it or threatening yeah. to destroy the agreement, yep. obviously, especially the United States. Yep. Um, and so it was hard to refute those arguments. Yeah. Um, and so I kept, I thought, okay, um, well, this is kind of convincing. Is it, was it the, was it the fervor of, was it the, maybe fervor is the right word. Was it the earnestness with which these people were saying, with, was it the earnest nature that they were communicating to you that, that made it feel kind of, um, not threatening for you to relinquish your old ideas and accept the new, you understand what I'm saying? You know how yeah. sometimes, you know, like people come at you super hard and that only right. makes you like harden your yeah, stance. People weren't and, attacking me uh -huh, uh -huh. at all. Okay. Um, people were just communicating ideas in a, in an earnest, serious way. And yeah. a sense that seemed very liberating to me. Ah, why, um, why, that why they were explaining liberating? why things were so bad. Uh -huh. And it seemed like I had never really gotten a good answer on that uh -huh. from the classes I was taking. Uh -huh. You know, we're constantly, you know, see, it's a great program, BU's IR department. Uh -huh. And so, you know, they're showing you, they're not pretending that what's happening as far as policy is adequate to the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but there wasn't really a discussion of what to do about any uh -huh. of that or why that was constantly, it was like, how many times can you see the same thing before you start asking, is this just what it's set up to do? This uh -huh coming short um and here were people who you know were saying had answers to that had explanations and also i found it very sort of endearing for lack of a better word um that these were just random people mm. <laughs> like there was no sense of qualifications yep. or you know there was no, no credentials yeah. um and that so i not to jump ahead i but basically i never left And just think, 
Had things gone a little differently, she might have been Alex Mochiano in this bitch. <laughs> okay, I promise her life continues to unfold in a fascinating manner. From getting kicked out of anarchist housing because she was turning into a socialist, to being a union organizer in grad school, and more in part two. Part two is up on the Patreon at patreon.com slash what's left to do. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's left to do. If Patreon isn't your thing and you'd still like to support this work, please feel free to make your way to what's left to do dot com slash support and send us a donation in the tip jar. Okay, see you over on Patreon. Patreon.